0: Today's reading comes from Matthew's Gospel, the 12th chapter, verses 13 through 21. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out, no one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ.
1: I think most of you here probably know this, uh, especially you longtime Hoosiers, probably all know this that John Wooden, uh, one of the most revered college basketball coaches of all time, grew up just a few miles north of here in Morgan County. Um, And John Wooden has said that he attributes most most of his leadership skills, the things he learned about leadership, to his dad, from watching his dad and learning from his dad. One of those stories he tells in his book Essential Wooden is about how when he was growing up in Morgan County, that the county would hire local farmers to come in with their teams of horses and their wagons, and they would send them down into gravel pits, into the limestone gravel pits, to load up those wagons with gravel, and then the horses would pull them out, and they'd deliver gravel various places around Morgan County, and they would use that to spread on the roads in Morgan County. He said one time when he was a child, he went with his father to those gravel pits, uh, to load up a wagon with some of that gravel and ahead of him there was a young farmer he said it looked like he was maybe early 20s this young farmer was trying to get up out of one of those gravel pits with his team of horses and this wagon full of gravel and the horses were struggling to do it and so he said this farmer was getting angry and upset and he was whipping the horses and he was cursing them and the horses were stomping and frothing at the mouth and pulling back against the reins and he was just getting nowhere so they watched for a little while, and then his father finally walked over and asked the young farmer if he could give him a hand, if he could help out. And the, and the farmer at that point was so frustrated, he was probably just happy to have the help. And here's what he described uh, that his father did. He says, first dad started talking to the horses, almost whispering to them and stroking their noses with a soft touch. Then he walked between them, holding their bridles and bits while he continued talking very calmly and gently as they settled down. Gradually, he stepped out in front of them, and he gave a little whistle to start them moving forward while he guided the reins. Within moments, those two big plow horses pulled the wagon out of the gravel pit as easy as could be, as if they were happy to do it. No whip, no temper tantrum, no screaming and swearing by Dad. I've never forgotten what I saw him do and how he did it. I thought that's a great illustration of what gentleness is like in Scripture. It's a gentleness that's rooted in strength. It's not about fear. It's not about a fear of confrontation or a fear of offending somebody, a fear of something. It's it's strong. It's powerful, but gentle. Scripture talks a lot about that kind of gentleness, gentleness that has a, a power to it. Proverbs 25.15 says through patience a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Powerful, but powerful in a very controlled way, in a considerate way, in a way that sees the other and responds to the needs and the temperament of the other. The Greek words in Scripture that are translated gentle and gentleness are pros and praotes, um, they're words that are actually hard to translate into English. Some of your versions will translate them into meek and meekness, and I think some modern translations change that because it, meek and meekness felt too weak. Gentle and gentleness, in some ways, maybe is understood by people as something that's weak. They say that's really not the idea of those words. Matter of fact, if you look at a Greek dictionary, it'll tell you that that those words mean not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. It's not really how you would think of those words. It, it really has more to do with an attitude of the heart. Not being caught up in your own self-importance. Or negatively, it might be to say that the opposite of them is there would be self-assertion. That would be the opposite. It's, it's about you and about asserting your power and about being in charge some way. That's not what gentleness is. Gentleness is not weakness, it is about strength, but it's about a strength that is controlled and used in such a way that it sees and it responds to the other. In fact, it's interesting that in Scripture, it's very often paired with the word humility. You'll find gentleness and humility together all the time throughout Scripture. Not in every case, but in many, many cases. They're paired because they're very closely linked, very similar ideas. To be gentle is simply to be humble, to not be so caught up in yourself or worried about you. And here are some, I think the best place to understand gentleness is to take a look at Jesus. And here are some pictures of Jesus and this gentle Jesus, but also maybe not gentle in the way we always expect. For instance, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, just a few verses before the passage that we're going to focus on this morning. Uh, in Matthew eleven twenty-nine, 29, Jesus says those familiar words, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble. Hear those two words together again? For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. But if you go back just a few verses before that, that verse, you'll find Jesus confronting a couple of towns, confronting them, telling them that there is judgment in their future, warning them about it. I mean, words that sound kind of hard. And he's telling them that because he says, this is the place where many of my miracles perform, but you have not responded, you've not repented. So so again, gentleness, he's gentle, but his gentleness doesn't mean he never speaks words that are direct or hard words. Matter of fact, you go a couple of chapters ahead to Matthew 21 and verse 5, those familiar words that we hear read all the time on Palm Sunday. See, the king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's gentle. He's our gentle savior. But just a few verses later, he enters the temple area and he turns over the tables of the money changers and he turns over the benches of those who are selling doves for sacrifice. And he basically calls them a bunch of crooks. Words that sound pretty direct and hard. Go a couple more chapters to chapter 23 in Matthew's gospel. And there he refers to the Pharisees as hypocrites, snakes, sons of hell, blind fools, and whitewashed tombs, along with some other choice terms. Those don't sound gentle the way we would normally kind of describe gentle, right? Those sound pretty direct, hard words, uh, words of warning and judgment. Jesus is gentle, but Jesus confronts spiritual abuse and those who are doing harm in the name of God. Jesus is gentle, but Jesus will often call his followers to do some very difficult things in the face of, of oppression, and in the face of persecution. He will call them to move right into it. He's gentle, but gentle doesn't mean he doesn't say or call us to do difficult things. I think what Jesus does, I think what you see in his gentleness is that he responds to people and he handles the people he deals with in a way that recognizes their need, that recognizes who they are, recognizes what they're going through. Those who have put themselves up on a pedestal and thinking very highly of themselves and are using their positions of power to harm and abuse others, especially spiritual abuse, he, he does what is necessary to kind of bring them back down, to call them to a different place to knock that pedestal out from under them but but even then I would say in a way that I actually think is kinda gentle and those who have been trampled on and those who feel they have nothing to offer and those who others look at as as worthless he he calls them to step up he lifts them up he shows them the value that he sees in them He, he responds appropriately to the people that he encounters. I think gentleness has something to do with that. Uh, It can be assertive, but I don't think it's self-assertive. It can sometimes be direct, but not unnecessarily harsh or demanding or blunt. Direct, but just enough, right? Just enough to call them back. Matter of fact, those who want to kind of justify being really tough on things, we're tough on sin, and we're We call it like it is. Those who want to justify it, they're quick to turn to how Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and they're quick to turn to his interaction that moment in the temple when he turned over the tables. They're always kind of the justification for us being tough and hard uh, in the face of sin. But the truth is, on most occasions, Jesus was surprisingly gentle, surprisingly compassionate and understanding. You see it in the way he responds towards the children that his disciples expected to be a nuisance to him. You see it in the way he responded to the woman at the well that everyone else avoided. She even came to the well in the middle of the day because she knew that no one wanted to be around her. But the way he treated her with such respect and dignity didn't didn't avoid her sin, but I would say dealt with it gently. You see it in the way he dealt with other people that people often condemned, with the tax collectors, with people of questionable moral character, Uh, the woman who was brought before him for adultery, or her part in adultery. You see again and again that the way he dealt with people didn't avoid sin, didn't avoid the truth, but just enough. Not unnecessarily harsh, not unnecessarily hard or blunt. His response again and again was one that I think saw the people in front of him and responded in a way that that considered them. Matter of fact, I would again argue that even with the Pharisees, I think he did that. Because when you consider the, when you consider the power and the consequences that were at Jesus' disposal, the things he could have done, and when you consider the horrible spiritual abuse that was being done through religious leaders in his time in the name of God, when you consider those two things, a stern rebuke and a call to repentance kind of gentle. i think it actually was a general response but then turn with me to matthew chapter twelve we'll look at the passage that we're gonna focus on today here again i think we see this general jesus so the story is where this man came to him that had scripture tells us a shriveled hand in some way his hand was deformed we're not told why or what the history was behind it but, but he encounters this man in the temple. Actually, he goes to the temple or to the synagogue, and this man is there. And the Pharisees see it as an opportunity to try and entrap him in some way because it's the Sabbath, and they want to entrap him in some way to see if they can catch him violating what they considered violating the Sabbath. It's interesting that they see this man with this deformed hand, and the first thing they think of is, oh, opportunity to catch Jesus and i think probably because they knew what jesus would do they knew jesus would see this man and have compassion upon him they knew the kind of man jesus was they knew how they responded to the, he responded to the needs of others they expected it so they asked him if it's lawful to heal on the sabbath and he says this if any of you has a sheep and it falls into the pit on the sabbath will you not take hold of it and lift it out how much more valuable is a person than a sheep Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he turns and he heals the man's hand. And immediately their response is they begin plotting to kill him. Well, you see the contrast there? The gentleness of Jesus where they expect him to reach out and heal this man's hand. They know that's what he's going to do. And he says to them, wouldn't you even do that for animals? Wouldn't you even respond to the needs of the animals? Come on, you know you would. So, of course, I will heal this man's hand. And immediately their response is, who is he to think he has that kind of authority, to take that kind of position before us? And they start plotting to kill him. And here's what's surprising, because if I'm, if I'm sitting watching a movie, uh, and this is going on, you know, and the Pharisees, in this case, are kind of the villains, and Jesus is the one who looks to them who they think is kind of powerless, but we all know he's got some real power, you know. Then I'm sitting watching that movie thinking, oh, you guys are going to find out, you know. You think you got him. You think you showed Jesus. Well, he's going to show you here in just a few minutes. And what does Jesus do? What's his response? He withdrew from the place, but he keeps on healing everyone who comes to him who was sick. What does he do? Well, in this case, he walks away. And I tell you, I was ready for a fight. I was ready for him to show those Pharisees who he really is and what they got coming. But he withdrew from the place. He walks away. So often I think that we we choose fights, we choose debates, we choose to prove ourselves, uh because it's something about us, right? I find myself sometimes drawn into a fight or a debate or arguing something because because I want I want to be right I want to be seen as right I want to be the one who wins I don't want you to feel like you got away with something you know I want to prove something about me Jesus because he's gentle because he's gentle in that way that's humble it wasn't just about proving something about him he continued to do what served his father's purposes it wasn't the right time for that confrontation And he continued to heal all who needed healed. If he entered that debate with the Pharisees, then those people aren't being healed in that moment. He continued to do what was most important. He doesn't confuse courage with recklessness, right? Jesus is courageous. He has no problem walking up and saying the hard things and putting himself in dangerous situations. But not in a reckless way. In a way that serves a purpose, and that purpose is to love his Father and to love others. He doesn't step out of that purpose. And in that moment, Matthew sees in Jesus, I think inspired by the Holy Spirit, he sees in Jesus the suffering servant that Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 42. And so he he says about Jesus that he's, he's that Messiah that Isaiah wrote about. And you've heard this many times before, that the people of Israel expected that suffering servant, that Messiah to come but he would come in decisive and irresistible power. He would bring justice, but he'd bring justice in a way that would shock the world, that would be powerful and immediate. And instead they look at Jesus and they see someone who walks away from the confrontation. Instead they see Jesus who's healing people and then tells them, don't tell anyone what I've done and who I am. It's not the right time. Very different Jesus than they expected to see. And and if you go on and read Isaiah's description of this suffering servant, he he gives us the words that the Father spoke about him. And here are those words. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. The reason Jesus doesn't have to prove anything about himself, he doesn't have to prove he's right and defend himself, It's because Jesus, I think, is secure in the love of the Father. There's nothing that has to be proved, right? He doesn't have to win the loyalty of others. He doesn't have to show that he's the most powerful. He is the most powerful. When I was a kid in high school, I wrestled. and I remember one time I was wrestling this kid that he had been a state champ as a freshman, expected to be a state champ that year. I think it was his sophomore year. We were both sophomores. It was one of those I was just thinking, how fast can I get this over with? Because this kid is going to kill me. You know, His name was Punk Blake. He went by the name Punk. Uh, I don't even know what his real name was, but for some reason Punk. But when your kid can beat everybody that bad, you can use the name Punk. Uh, well, it was a tournament where we were hanging around all day, and ended up hanging out with this kid, Punk, and we were playing cards and talking. And the other thing that struck me, I didn't even realize it was him at first because I didn't know him. So I didn't even realize it was him, and we got talking a while, and it finally hit me. What struck me was this kid had nothing to prove. He wasn't out to show me he was the wrestler there. He wasn't out to show me how great he was. He didn't have anything to prove. The reason was because he was the best one there. <laughs> he didn't have to tell you he didn't have to show off he didn't have to make sure you knew it because he just was right i think he was secure in that fact There was actually a humility to him that i really enjoyed because he was secure in that fact jesus is secure in the love of his father jesus is secure in his value that he is chosen by his father for this incredibly important purpose and you say well that's wonderful that's jesus Those same words are spoken in Scripture about us. We are loved in ways we can only imagine. We have been chosen. We are chosen for a purpose. Uh, Those things are true of us too. That that we are people that honestly, when we stop and think about it, why do we always have to prove something about ourselves? The Father loves us. The Father says, I have chosen you. The Father says that I have called you to serve this great purpose and join this great cause. Why do we always have to prove something about ourselves? And and it goes on and says that Jesus will bring justice. He's going to do that. Things will be set right. Shalom will eventually come. Everything will be as it should be. He will bring justice. Uh, As a matter of fact, ultimately, he'll bring justice to victory. It's going to happen. But how will we do it? He says he will not quarrel or cry out, no one will hear his voice in the streets. He doesn't draw attention to himself, he doesn't have to have big fights, he doesn't have to quarrel. He presents the truth. He lives it out with others, he calls them to repentance, he doesn't have to prove anything. And then it says these beautiful words a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. On this path to victory, on his way to victory, it says he will, he will not break a bruised reed. Now reeds in that time, uh, in that part of the world, I understand the most common one is kind of similar to bamboo, maybe not as large, but very similar. And they say, just like with bamboo, if those fibers get kind of crushed, if, if it's bruised, then that becomes weak. It's a place that will easily break. And those reeds in the Middle East were often used to make things like walking canes and other things. And they're saying if they were bruised, if those fibers were crushed, then they'd be tossed aside. They were useless because of that. And then he uses that image of the, of the candle that's wick is just right on the edge of going out. The last ember is glowing. It's just about to be extinguished. And again, I think he's drawing our attention to the fact of, to imagine the people who are broken, who are hurt, who are abused, who are trampled on. Those who who the heaviness of life is just about to suck the life out of them. They are worn out and worn down. He says on his path to bringing justice, he will not break a single bruised reed. He will not stuff out any of those smoldering wicks. I was thinking about this this weekend. Um, How often that is not me. I always say one of the one of the sins I continually struggle with and battle with. I'm aware of it, but I just fall back into it again and again and again. Is this tendency to get so focused on a task, a place that I want to go, that that the task becomes all I think about, and the people I encounter along the way, or even the people that are in that task with me, suddenly get lost. Because it's all about doing the task well and getting it done at a certain time and those kind of things. They they kind of disappear in the midst of it. Uh, my wife and I just bought a, a new house and it was a house that needs extensive remodeling. Uh, so it is a long, long list of things that I've been doing over the last several months. And I got to tell you, I just continually find myself falling back into the trap of I got this list and I want to check the next thing on the list and check the next thing on the list. And sometimes my wife is simply an obstacle to getting there. You know, her ideas, her involvement in it, it would just go much faster if you get out of the way. So yesterday before I was coming up here to study some, I wanted to hang some pictures and she was asleep and I thought, oh, before she gets up, I'm going to hang some pictures real fast and get out the door. And sure enough, she got up before I got out the door, or before I even started hanging them. And then I was standing there doing a little up, a little down, a little up, a little down, a little, up, a little up, a little down. And I wasn't saying anything, but she could see in my face, I'm sure. As a matter of fact, she said later. We had to talk about it later. She could see in my face. She was an obstacle to me getting the task done. She was, she was a burden, which is craziness when you think about it. Why do I want this house? I want to provide a, a home for me and my wife this is about her and yet she becomes quickly an obstacle in the task and i sometimes walk over sometimes walk around her to get where i want to go that's not jesus jesus is on a path an incredibly important path um, but not a bruise reed will he break not a smoldering wick will he snuff out. And you see it again and again. People are surprised. His disciples are surprised by the people he stops and gives attention to, by the way he reaches out and cares for them, by the compassion he shows on those that others don't even notice. Again and again and again. And how crazy it would be to bring justice and then run right over top of others, right? To do injustice to others on your path to justice. How crazy that would be. That's not the gentleness of our Savior. So as his followers, I think we're called to walk that same path. We're called to join him in that path towards justice and bringing justice. But we're also called to do it in the way he does it. Here's a quote from Don Carson, a theologian, New Testament scholar. Um, he says this, Jesus' witnesses are called to a holy and courageous boldness. A firm fidelity to the gospel that is willing to endure ostracism and even persecution. We're called to difficult things, to face hard things. But we are not to display the kind of strength that is hard and harsh, the kind of uprightness that is angry and condescending, the kind of courage that is merely ruthless, the kind of witness that rants and manipulates. We're to walk that path, and it's a tough path, and you're going to face hard things but we're to do it in a way that displays the gentleness of our Savior. Gentleness is a very common theme throughout Scripture. Let me read you just a few of those verses. There are a lot of them we could read, but here's just a handful of them. Ephesians 4, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And what's that way of living that is worthy of your calling? Be completely humble and gentle, those two words together again. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. In Colossians 3, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Galatians 6, 1, dealing with someone who has fallen into sin. says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Restore them, deal with sin, address it, but gently. 1 Timothy 3.3 requires elders of the church to be not violent, but gentle. And 2 Timothy 2.25 says that they are to be those who, who when people oppose them, they gently instruct them. Titus 3.2 instructs us to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always, always in every situation, be gentle towards everyone. That kind of covers it all, doesn't it? And then finally, in Philippians 4, 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. And here Paul is kind of summing up. It's kind of those, you know, marching orders. He's sending them out at the end of the letter. And addressing, he's kind of just throwing out a few things to, you know, don't forget these things. Of all the character traits that he could have mentioned then, this is the one he mentions. Let your gentleness be evident to all. I think gentleness will often seem very inefficient if my main goal is to get my way or to get where I want to go. But Jesus shows us that on the path towards justice, gentleness is the most efficient way for us to go. It is the path we're called to walk. So I want to end with just a quote and then a few questions for us. So here's the quote from Jonathan Edwards. This is from a sermon that he preached at the funeral of a missionary, David Brainerd. In, in the quote, he is, he is saying what he believes the saints in heaven will see when they first encounter Jesus in heaven. He says they'll not only see infinite majesty and greatness, but infinite grace, condescension and mildness, and gentleness and sweetness equal to this majesty, so that the sight of Christ's great kingly majesty will be no terror to them, but will only serve the more to heighten their pleasure and surprise. He perfectly blends those things power and gentleness, majesty and grace. It's not either or. They're always both present at the same time, which is such a remarkable thing. So a few questions to leave us with. One, when we encounter those who oppose us, are they surprised by our gentle strength? Or are our responses unnecessarily blunt, harsh, or defensive? And let me throw in there, even like, say, in social media, Are people surprised by our gentleness? You know how you can kind of slide some stuff in there you wouldn't say face-to-face? Are they surprised by the gentleness of our responses? Two, on our path to doing good and important things, do we still see and respond compassionately to the vulnerable, the needy, and those who are worn down by this life that we encounter along that path? Three, do others tense up in our presence, expecting critique or correction or judgment as our first and primary response? Four, when we encounter an obstacle to getting our way, our anger demandingness, or manipulation close behind. Five, do we expect hope for and encourage gentleness from our leaders, especially within the church? Six, do we find ourselves often needing to prove we are right or are we quick to turn to debate into quarrel? And then seven, when we are broken, struggling to do right and to persevere, and when we feel worn down, do we expect to find tenderness and gentleness in the face of Jesus if we turn towards him? You know, have been talking about what we're supposed to do, but do we understand that when we come to Jesus, when we're that bruised reed, when we're that wick that's smoldering and just about to go out, he absolutely wants to stop and pay attention. We have his attention in those moments. He is the one that on his path to justice, he cares. Do we turn to him with that understanding? Let's let our gentleness be evident to all. So we're going to end with the prayer that we've been praying through this series. ask you to join me in it. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, Three persons and one God have mercy upon me. Amen.